1: Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I am here today with Greg Cohen. Greg, thanks so much for being with us.
0: My pleasure. It's just wonderful to, to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, why don't you kick it off to our listeners who you are, where you're from?
0: Absolutely. So, um, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida,
1: and uh,
0: I run a company called JWB Real Estate Capital. And uh, we set out on this mission a long time ago to make investing in rental properties easy for investors. And it's been an incredible journey over the years. We've built up enough trust to serve over 1,200 clients come to us from 43 different states and 13 different countries. And they all invest here in Jacksonville with us, and we get to manage their portfolios. We manage over $750 million now of real estate portfolios and uh, have had a lot of fun through this the 16-year journey that we've been on so far. So, yeah. A lot of
1: fun along the way. That's awesome. So we'll dive into some really interesting topics today and you'll probably get a phone call from me because I'm actively looking for properties in Florida and Jacksonville is one of the cities. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I'll let you know from the investor standpoint, um, try and get on your investor list and see some, see some deals, but I'm, I'm really curious what got you into real estate. You know, everyone has like that first experience or that first exposure that really just the power of real estate and sparked that curiosity towards this amazing industry. So I'm curious what that was for you. Well, I can tell you that I was not destined to be in real estate in
0: the beginning. (laughs) And I didn't come from a family that was entrepreneurial or invested in real estate. Both my mom and my dad only bought their primary residence uh, until I, of course, got into the business. And I didn't come from money or any set of circumstances that would have led me to investing in something like real estate my mom was a single mom and raised my sister and I. But what happened was my dad would always talk to me about real estate. And when I was young, when I was in my teens and in my early 20s, I didn't listen to him, but somewhere in my mind, it just kind of settled in. And um, you know, I went to college and graduated and I thought I wanted to go and work in corporate America. And that's what I did. And I found out that it wasn't right for me. I kind of got smacked in the face a little bit. And uh, when that happened... All of those years of talking about uh, investing in real estate or learning about investing in real estate is what I what I ran to, and so I started to read and I started to expose myself to mentors in real estate. I read a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, which Jeffrey, I'm sure you and your listeners have listened. Yep. To. I've read Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of like a staple of the industry. Oh man, it changed my life. It really did. Yeah. And uh, from that point forward, I really uh, I have three business partners with me, so we just kind of set out to do this business in a different fashion though. We, we found it to be more of a hobby for most people. And we felt that if we could bring this and bring more of a business mentality, that we could be really successful and help a lot of people. The problem was we were 23 years old. We didn't have any money. We didn't really know what a business mentality was. <laughs> so we tried a lot of things early on. And um, I remember we tried flipping high-end houses. We tried flipping low-end houses. We tried wholesaling. We tried lease options, seller financing, anything out there. We tried commercial. We tried everything. And uh, one thing that we tried that I'm so thankful we did was, was buying rental properties. And so in the first year and a half, my business partners and I bought about 40 rental properties and started to build our portfolio. And that was 2006. And um, right after that was 2007 to 2011, and we all know what happened there, Jeffrey. That, that was a little bit of a crazy time, huh?
1: Okay, so I'm curious about that. So one of my questions is, you know, is there an, a failure or an apparent failure that has set you up for later success? I usually ask it later in the episode, but I'm really curious now. So you dove in after leaving corporate America, you dove into real estate investment invested in 40 properties with partners in a year and a half, which is blistering speed to to be just getting into it. I mean, that's, that's a huge portfolio for 18 months, new in the business, right? And then the bottom falls out. What happened from 2007 to 11 for you guys?
0: Well, you know, up till that point, I had learned from a lot of amazing mentors on the fundamentals of buying cash flowing properties. Uh, and I believed it. But when the market was dropping like it was, I would be lying if I didn't tell you I was very scared. And um, I had never been through that before. But what I quickly learned every month when I checked our company bank account is that the rental income kept coming in. As I was reading all the news reports about the market dropping, and it did drop 35% Mm -hmm. over that, that time period in Jacksonville and in other places in the country, it was like I was living two worlds. It was like, oh man, the fear of everybody talking about the market dropping. But in my yeah. world, I owned these rental properties that were kicking off a hundred bucks a month or 200 bucks a month. And because I didn't need to sell, it was weird because I knew that I was doing well there. And it, 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 I remember just thinking like I was living two different
1: worlds. Duality, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so really that, that principle of not overleveraging let you... Be in a position to not have to sell. Right. It did. It did. It was that commitment
0: to cash flow positive. Mm. Right. And I really believe cash flow positive is so important because it reduces risk. Because from one year to the next, we can't really tell where the market is going to go from a pricing perspective. But if you don't need to sell and you have something that's paying for itself every single month, that is risk mitigation. And I right. especially I'm more of a conservative investor. I love when I buy assets that pay for themselves. That's one of the things I learned from Rich Dad Poor Dad is that's my simple definition
1: of an asset. If it brings me money every single month, that's an asset. If I have to pay money every single month, that's a liability. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, and that is the simple version of accounting that he he depicts in Rich Dad Poor Dad that I've still taken to this day. Is it bringing in money or is it taking out money? That's so cool. simple. So I love that concept that even new in the business, you have the right principles, you didn't over leverage, you didn't bank on appreciation like many did and many got, got burned during that time for that strategy. So then you're able to hold on to all 40 properties. And then probably through 2007 and 11, you also saw a ton of deals and were able to, you know, help people out of their situation and scoop up, I'm sure a ton of deals from other wholesalers or finding them yourselves, right? Like if you were in that position of not having to sell during that time and you had cash flowing properties, well, yeah, their, their valuation didn't go up. So you couldn't necessarily like refinance and cash out, but you still had cash flowing properties. So were you able to scoop up more deals through that time as well, going into you know 2011 and then into the upswing that we've been experiencing? We were, but I think that would be painting it with a rosy colored picture, <laughs> with rosy
0: colored glasses, if I sure. am very transparent with you about 2007 and 2011, yeah, right? Yeah. The way I felt about it is that my retirement strategy, which was those 40 rental properties was good. You know, I was going to hold on to them for forever and they were continuing to cash flow. Uh, they continued to be occupied by residents. So those, those were good. Now, my business elsewhere had a lot of learning to do, um, mm. you know, because we were trying everything. We were trying flipping high end houses. Well, I can tell you that didn't go well from 2007 to 2011, you know, and because in a new, yeah. in a, in a high end home, you can't just rent that thing out and have it be positive cash flow. You have to sell it. And so we took big losses on properties. Yes. Uh, so and, you took some licks. Oh yeah. yeah. We took a lot of licks. We took a lot. I mean, everybody <laughs> was just, Every, yeah. You know, everybody was. And, you know, what most people did with that is they ran for the hills. And I remember mm. the moments with my business partners where we, we sat down and we said, oh my goodness. All right. If we're going to generate enough cash to support our business, then we're going to have to figure out how to redo our entire business plan we're going to have to figure out how to sell houses in a different way. Because the idea of just speculating, buying for this and expecting to sell at a higher price was not going to go well. It did not go well. It cost us a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that moment, it was very scary, but we all went back to our fundamentals of what we believed. And we believed that real estate is cyclical. We believe that real estate would come back, even though not many people did at that time. And then what we also believe is that we loved what we do. We loved working with our team and that if we believe that it was cyclical and we could figure out a different way to do business, that when we came back out of that low point in the cycle, we would be light years ahead of Mm. all of our competition. So we actually hired more. We invested in systems and people called us crazy. Right, we were still a, we were 23, 24, 25 years old.
1: People are giving up on the industry, leaving it, saying, you know, I just got absolutely creamed by this unforeseen bubble, and you guys are doubling down and st- hiring and creating systems.
0: Yeah, we people thought we were off the deep end, and
1: <laughs> they really did.
0: Um, but what we learned is, you know, sometimes you have this moment of an epiphany where you you look at everything you're doing and you're like, wait a second, let me just take a step back, let me see what's actually producing and where my time is being spent. And we looked at all the activities that we were doing and we said, well, geez, flipping isn't working, right? Wholesaling properties wasn't working. Wait a second, let me look at rental properties. This is working. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, right, we had family and friends and other people that were kind of asking us questions. And they're like, Greg, you're you know, 23 years old. How are you buying 40 rental properties? I mean, you don't come right. money. How, how are you doing? And we're like, oh my goodness, there's an interest in what we're doing. And mm-hmm. so we said... Well, if we could just replicate the same process that we had figured out for ourselves and make real estate investing and rental property investing easy, we might have something here. And so from that very tough moment, we came upon our vertically integrated turnkey rental properties. And that's what we do now. So people can buy properties from us, we build a brand new construction home, we put a resident in place in that home, on a long-term lease, and then we sell it to that investor, and we handle all parts of the management for them. It's all done in-house. And so that, and I think back about the toughest moments in my career, those were the toughest moments, but without that very terrible experience of going through the downturn and losing a lot of money, I'm convinced that it wouldn't have brought us to what is our calling card now, our hedgehog, which is our turnkey rental properties and property management business.
1: Absolutely. Trial by fire. Nothing better, it's the greatest learning experience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a great story. And I don't know about my listeners, but for me that builds tremendous value in everything that you've done and where you're at to date. So if I wanna invest across the country, someplace that I wouldn't be able to get to quickly, of course I can fly there, but I can't drive 45 minutes to my rental, you know, down the way if something goes wrong. If I'm going to do going to do that, I need to trust the people that I'm investing with. And for me, that story just builds a lot of trust. So I, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing that. And also talking about doubling down and going the other way from the herd because you're able to see the long-term vision rather than be caught up in the moment of today and the fear and the chaos. So really admire that. Well, thank you so much. I mean, don't you think that most companies fall victim to that? They they try to get they, they set their sights
0: next quarter or mm-hmm. the following quarter, maybe if they're really long-term thinkers, right? They, they set themselves on a quarterly basis, right? Yeah. And if you, if you start to think long-term, you, you generally make better decisions.
1: Yeah. One uh, principle that I think we can learn from the East is that uh, Japanese business owners write 100-year business plans. Wow, really? Yeah, they write business plans that exceed their life. And, uh, in the United States, you know, we, we form an LLC, throw up a website. We don't even have a business plan, oh, wow. <laughs> right? wonder what it, they so, must think so, of us listening to some so, of our podcasts. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just the contrast, the difference, like, I don't think that we necessarily need to write hundred year business plans, but that concept of the f- long-term thinking, the vision, and just considering advancements in technology and, and where things will be at that time and what's still going to be relevant not hanging your hat on some widget or some thing. And in the marketing world, I experienced this a lot. I experienced what's called the innovator's dilemma since starting my own real estate marketing agency. You know, Apple, all the big tech companies, they experience this because when you create something that is cutting edge, well, as time goes on and users adopt it and new things come out, you have to then create something else that is cutting edge or adapt to something that influences it and that changes So, there's this constant like every six months kind of rebuilding, revamping all the systems. So, the thought of like, oh, I'm going to build this business that's on autopilot. If you're doing things that are innovative, it's not really the case. There has to be constant research and development and innovation. Otherwise, your product becomes inferior and you fall behind. So, I've experienced that and the concept that I want to just like kind of round off this whole story that I'm telling is that... If you focus on universal truths and solving universal problems, rather than focusing on like a particular platform or widget that day, then that's how you can have longevity because the platforms and things will change. But what always matters is customer experience and having a direct line of contact to your customer or client, which is email, phone number, and like the actual relationship with them, right? Not, not relying on your Instagram following. And things like this, because those things change tomorrow that could be gone, but what won't be gone is your email list, your, you know, your your database, right? Yeah. So it comes back to trust too, right? If your
0: mm -hmm. clients trust you, you don't have to have all the fanciest things out there, right? Like for us with JWB, right? For the longest time, we had our Excel spreadsheets that didn't even have pictures on them of the houses that we were selling. Yeah. Numbers. yeah, they're just numbers and it's a conversation yeah. and, you know, it's delivered over email and it's like, right. and people do try to complicate it because at the core of it, trust is so hard to earn and um,
1: many times it's taken for granted. Yep. Absolutely. So before the podcast, we were discussing a, a few different things and something you mentioned that that piques my interest were the five profit centers. Now I'm, I'm interested to learn more about this because when you're looking at a rental property, typically it's like, okay, appreciation and rental income. right? So feel free to just dive in and uh, stretch out and explain what you mean by the five profit centers.
0: Yeah. Well, I love this, this conversation and I'll try to bring a little bit of perspective because you know, I, I started to invest in 2006 and that was at a place where everybody believed real estate was on fire and would always be on fire. And I remember being in rooms where people said, yeah, there's real estate never goes down in value it always goes up in value. And as we know that that's not not real, of course, but nobody was talking about cash flow at that moment. Everybody thought that this was the gravy train and we're just going to buy properties that are going to be worth more next week. And that's how we're going to make money, right? right. Um, so people were on one end of the spectrum. Then of course, I held those properties all through the downturn. And now I've built up a portfolio of over 300 that I still own here with my business partners at JWB, right? we know what it feels like to own these rental properties. And the reasons why people bought rental properties in 2006 were completely different as to why they bought rental properties in 2010 or in 2015. Mm-hmm. And what people started to do is to say, well, I'm never going to pay attention to home price appreciation because I got burned from 2007 to 2011. Right. I can't count on home price. I'm going to take that home price appreciation thing and just, I'm going to put cash flow blinders on. That's all I'm going to do. <laughs> and so people, and it's easier to calculate cash flow than it is home price appreciation or how you should right. put that into your return. So would you say like the pendulum kind of swung the other way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. People nowadays are more likely to say, listen, if it doesn't hit this cash on cash return, if this cash flow number isn't high enough for me, it's not a good deal. And we've gone way in the wrong direction because again, kind of to your point, right? If you think long-term about your business or an investment, you can start to see realities that will play out over the long haul. And then you can analyze it, taking all these things into account. When you look at real estate, one of the reasons... The reasons why I love this over other asset classes is because it pays me five ways. There are five profit centers. There are not five profit centers in other asset classes, right? In the stock market, typically you have one it's mm-hmm. stock appreciation, okay. right? You're lucky if you get a dividend, but most times you don't. It's typically stock appreciation. That's, that's one profit center. In real estate, you have five, right? You have positive cash flow, you have tax savings, you have principal pay down. You have home price appreciation and you have inflation hedging. And so, to kind of wrap up where that pendulum has swung, now it's largely about cash flow. But the thing about it is that cash flow is diminishing right now because home prices are going up at a fast rate. Rents are going up, but they're not keeping up because they're not mm-hmm. going to. And interest rates are about to rise. And so we've seen that this cash flow blinder approach is very short-sighted. And reality is if you start to understand how home price appreciation works, it works very different in one market versus another market. But what happens over time is history repeats itself. Real estate is cyclical. So if you know what your long-term appreciation rate is in your market and you're committed to buying and holding that rental property for the long haul, then it's kind of like having the answers for the test. You're going to hold on for a 10 or 20 year period. On average, you're going to earn a certain appreciation rate. And if you look back over history, you take 10, 15, 20 year segments of time, it proves this. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the right way to look at all five of these profit centers is to understand them, of course. And the right way to look at home price appreciation and cash flow is that they're both important, right? Cash flow is kind of like your entrance into the game, it needs to be an asset, it needs to pay for itself. Does it need to be $300 a month in cash flow? No. Is $50 a month in cash flow positive? Is that great? Maybe. Yeah. That that could be great. And then you can look at what the long-term historical appreciation rate is. And if you do this, you know where to look and you compare different markets, you might make a decision to invest in one market that might translate into hundreds of thousands of dollars more over a 10 or a 20 year hold. But you got to pay attention to all five profit centers. Remove those cash flow blinders that many investors have succumbed to over the last decade.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. I like how you talk about some of the overlooked aspects like inflation protection too. Yeah.
0: You know, I never felt like inflation protection got its due as a profit center, right? Right. And it's the heyday for talking about, you know, hedging against inflation right now when, you know, inflation is in the news all the time. Yeah, People are looking for ways to protect against the dollar going down in value. um, And it's real and and inflation, real estate is one of the best assets to protect against inflation.
1: Yeah, so very interesting. And I think that looking at it with a more holistic view and a longer term vision helps you to get over some of the things that might turn you off in the short term to a certain deal. You know, I was talking to an investor on the show in the, I think the New Jersey area, and he said, we passed on so many deals early on for a fraction of a percent of return. And we're idiots because if we would have just picked those properties up, when we had the the homeowner across the table from us and we're looking at the numbers, man, we would have so much more momentum and, and like wealth moving forward today. So I think if you're, it allows you margin for error. And one of the reasons I love real estate. Not only for personal investments, but also for helping broker real estate properties for others is because it's such a forgiving asset. Yes. Really, like time heals all wounds in real estate. So, as long as you're not over leveraged and you're forced into a sale, if you just hang on to it, even if things get really bad, like every hundred years bad, like the recession, if you could just hold on to it for five years or 10 years, well, You know, five years, we're back to where we were. Ten years, we've appreciated massively. So it's such a forgiving asset. And uh, I really believe in and feel confident in helping others to just get their mind around that, right? Pull the trigger on the deal. Just get your feet wet.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, if you're in long enough in real estate, largely you're going to win right? Mm-hmm. You don't
1: have to be this
0: expert. In, you don't have to be Nostradamus, right? It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, simple asset class, which I appreciate. I, I was doing some of the stats because some of our clients were asking, uh, they know that I bought at the absolute wrong time in 2006 to buy rental properties. And they said, well, how are those properties doing today? And I went back and I ran the numbers in the Jacksonville market. And would you believe that on average, even though the market value went down 35% over the next, whatever, four years, five years, now still holding on to those properties, call it 15 years later. on average values went up 3% per year, which is roughly about what real estate tracks historically even in not so volatile times. And so you hold on long enough, you hold on for a full market cycle and you're
1: largely going to win. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes back to a stock market tip from you know one of the greats who says time, not timing. Yes. yes. Everyone's trying to time the market in terms of buying low and selling high. But Jim Rohn talked about if you were to invest at the absolute worst time and, you know, you you, you invested when the stock was as high as possible, and then 30 years later, you sold it at the absolute worst time when it was the lowest possible, you would make 10%. If yeah. in, in the same kind of note, you were able to Invest at the absolute best time, but then you sold it 10 years later at the absolute best time, you'd make 10%. So if you just time, right, the longer amount of time that you hold these types of assets with long-term appreciation, as well as, you know, dividends or cash flow from a rental income, inflation protection, like there are so many other factors, so really that concept of not over-leveraging, not using money that you need now or in the short term, like those are the types of concepts that serve you in real estate, or in stocks, or in you know any type of investing, right? I completely agree.
0: And then you also think about the amount of time that we all waste trying to time the market, right? Yes. There's so much wasted time and energy between what people spend their their time on, and between the talking heads saying that this is the right <laughs> yeah. time and this is the wrong. Like there's an entire like GDP of a many countries that's wasted by trying to time the market, um, um, and I agree with you, it's it's time in the
1: market, it's not timing the market. Yeah, and I, I could talk about that for, you know, an extended period of time. I have friends that now are obsessed with their Robinhood app, they're looking at it every single day and multiple times throughout the week, and it's like, I had a conversation with one the other day, did you know that a stockbroker with a series seven license over a 10 year period of time that wakes up every single day, puts a suit on, goes to the New York Stock Exchange and is on the phone at 9.30, calling clients all day, trying to time things, pick stocks, over 10 years, can't beat the S&P 500? Nope. So why are you, with a day job that is not stock brokering, gonna try and beat the S&P 500? All you have to do is just buy the S&P and just buy the S&P and buy the S&P. Like, stop wasting all this time, right? So, you know, I. I just, I'm a big believer in that. You and me both. So I'm curious about some of your entrepreneurial habits. You know, this podcast is largely about the action items for success from top real estate professionals. And a lot of that is the consistent habits and the actions that you take on a daily basis over an extended period of time. So what would you say is the single most important action that you take on a daily basis that has attributed most to your success?
0: Well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a man of faith and I think prayer is something that I can just absolutely attribute something I can do here that I believe just has a profound impact and, um, on my success. And, and so I'll I'll start there. Um, I'm not perfect about it. I don't do it every day. I want to though. And, uh, if I get a little bit more tactical though, one of the things that I've always done, and I, I remember doing this when I was like in elementary school is that I always made lists. And then I always planned my next day. And I, I remember vividly, like my dad looking at me writing this list down. And, and when I was like 10 years old and, and he's like, what are you doing? And I, and I was like, well, here, I plan my day tomorrow. And he's like, oh, goodness. like where, who are you? Like, where did that come from? Right. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't, I've always done this. I always, I take the activities that I've got to do and I'm making sure that I plan my week. Um, And the following day, I make sure my day is time blocked and it's my way of doing things. Like that's, that is just normal for me. And I, and I realize that's not normal for everybody else, but that is something I believe just helps me get the most out of every minute of the day. Um, it Mm -hmm. leads to great happiness for me.
1: Absolutely. Planning is so important having, and, and Jim run talks about this too. He says, don't start your day until it's planned out. And he said, in fact, in fact, don't go to bed the night before until your next day is planned out. Right. So having that plan in place, you know, extrapolate that out, not starting your week till your week's planned out, not starting your month till your month's planned out. You know, you can start to put things in place. And one of my great mentors at Cutco when I was, a, as a Cutco rep, he said, one minute of planning saves two minutes of execution. Yep. And it's, I'm, it's yeah. such a simple concept because the hard thing to do with planning is I don't have enough time. Mm-hmm. I don't have enough time to sit down and plan. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there's a net positive gain. If you look at it that way, if I, if I spend an hour planning, it's going to save me two hours, mm-hmm. right? So.
0: Absolutely. In fact, right before this interview, I was in our quarterly manager meetings here at JWB. And we started to do this probably three years ago, maybe five years ago with our supervisors and our managers. And it has been just this amazing experience. Prior to that, my business partners and I always did it every quarter. And then we did our business planning. Um, and I don't know where we'd be without it, but I but I know that every year we plan, okay, well, this is going to be our business planning week. We plan it a year in advance. And then every quarter, we're planning, okay, a quarter, this is going to be our quarterly manager meetings with our team. And then you break it down onto a weekly basis. Okay, well, this, this is where I'm going to spend my time and my activities. And so the planning to plan part of this is something that's in everybody's control. And if you do that, then it's going to lead to that successful outcome that you're looking for.
1: Yep, absolutely. I love that. I'm glad you you brought up planning as an as important action in your success and your firm's success. Mm-hmm. So when you're planning things out, You're looking at everything that you could do. You could go to these uh, real estate investment meetings every single month. You could go to your your local business network and try and, you know, drum up investors or business there. You know, you could say yes to a thousand things and a lot of them might not be income producing, right? So what's your process for evaluating what to say no to?
0: Mm, That's a really good question. You know, my process, I realized that our success and my success is less about my idea or what I actually do. And it's more about making sure that I'm leading the people around me because the people who I am serving, meaning the people that might report to me, I think of them as, as I'm serving them because no matter how great my idea may be, if I have 10 people that are reporting to me, their ideas, even if it's not as great, which is probably better than mine, their ideas are going to have a much bigger and profound impact. If I can have ten people performing at a really high level, um, so if I'm thinking about what activities I am doing, a lot of my time in my week is spent thinking about others—the the people that are reporting to me—and how can I make sure that they're performing their best? And it's beyond just the tactical. It's you know we have you know meetings that we call one-to-ones here at JWB. We spend time every single week just sitting down, spending an hour with all of our direct reports and. And asking what's going on in their lives, right? building relationships. It doesn't have to be about hitting the number this week. So if I'm thinking about where I'm spending my activities, anything that I can do to grow the people that are around me, I know I'm going to accomplish my goal quicker, faster, better. Um, If it's something that is just a one-time impact, maybe it's an opportunity to go to a networking group, um, but there's just a very, it's like a one-time pop for me, it's probably something I'm going to say no to because it's it's not lasting, it's not growing, it's um, it's not the greatest impact because it's just me and it's just a one-time thing. So that's probably how I make that decision more often than not. Cool.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. And I, I like the approach of including your team and then also having conversations about what's going on in their life one-to-one rather than just always focusing on the numbers. Uh, I think that that will help a lot with your attention as I'm sure that you've seen. Absolutely. I mean,
0: people are going to do well when they're in in an environment where people feel like they truly care about them. And all you do is just talk about the numbers and the goals that you're trying to
1: hit from a business perspective. You're not going to get a lot of buy-in that you actually care about that person beyond those numbers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That was my experience at Cutco. I shared this at eXpCon. I'm an eXp commercial agent. So I went out to Mm -hmm. eXpCon in in Las Vegas in October. And uh, we were in an open room where uh, Pete Middleton was leading the room, but he actually crowdsourced ideas. It was a phenomenal breakout. Really? And he was saying, he was saying, who's doing lead gen that's crushing it. Instead of putting all the pressure on himself, right? He, he like opened up to the room and people just started sharing incredible ideas. And then, you know, he got to a certain, at the end actually, someone asked about, you know, how do I get my agents to be as motivated as I am? Yeah, And I was able to answer that question because at 18 years old, I was at Cutco Cutlery 19, you know, as a sales rep at 19, they invited me to be an assistant manager. And then by the time I was 20, I was a sales manager, the number one office in the nation. And I was a part of interviewing and recruiting a team of 80. So I interviewed over 500 reps during that time and, you know, hired 80. And oh then I was, I was, you know, running and motivating and managing training, 80 reps that were like 18 and I was 20, you know? Oh uh, so. It was number one, like herding cats because they were all independent contractors. Right. So, you can't say do this or you're fired. Right. Right? That ended up creating a superpower within me because I learned that I needed to truly affect and influence them. I couldn't just boss them around. Right. So, what I I did was I helped them do the math. First of all, I made it simple because when you get into something new, like for example, your team members, they probably don't understand the KPIs and the simplicity of the formula of how to drive business as much as you do. You've been doing in the 16 years, founder of the company. But when you write it down on paper for them, how much money do you want to make if it's a commission job? Right. I want to make, uh, in this case, it was, I want to make $3,000 by the end of the summer so I can put a down payment on a car before I go to college. That mm-hmm. was like a eight senior, 18 year olds, you know, goal, like all they could think of conceive of of like the, the maximum amount of money they could make in two months. And I was like, you're, you're underselling yourself. You can make a lot more than that, but right. all right, let's, let's break it down. So I made it personal to them. It didn't matter what my goals were. Right. I could tell them you could make 30 grand, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't even understand that. Or, you know, that, that wouldn't be something that they would believe in. And then they'd probably sell nothing.
0: Absolutely.
1: So when I tied it into their goal, I'd say, okay, 3000. Okay. Here's what your commission rate is now. Here's the tiers of the commission rate and how it excels as you increase in career sales. And then by the time you sell 3,000, you'll be at this commission rate. So I broke down the math for them and said, here's how many demos you need. How many calls does it take to set one appointment? 10 to 1, right? Okay, so then I showed them the ratios. Okay, and what's the closing ratio on those? 60% company average. You might be better, but we're gonna be conservative. Okay, cool. Here's how many phone calls you need to make per day in order to you know, make $3,000 by the end of summer. And not just make $3,000, but buy the car that you you want prior Absolutely. to leaving for college. Now it's real to them. Now it's tangible, they can taste it. And then we take it a step further, we create a little thermometer and we put the exact photo of a car off Google and paste it to the top. And every sale, they highlighter in and have their customers sign the thermometer. That's awesome. Now they're freaking, chomping at the bit on the phone like killing it they sell enough in you know one month to get it rather than two and they're blown away and thanking me saying i didn't know i was capable of this and that was that was really what like inspired me and fulfilled me as a manager was when people would say that to me so the fact that you guys have those one-on-ones reminds me of that time when i was a manager at cutco
0: man i'm sitting here smiling so much because i can relate so much to what you're talking about but the fact that you are doing this at 18 and 19 years old is mind blowing to me Uh, because I feel like I got started in entrepreneurial world and investing early. It was 23 for me, but I look at, and I have a few friends that have had that Cutco experience. And at 18 Mm -hmm. and 19 years old, you, I mean, I got to imagine, you just look back at that and you're like, wow, that was the best college experience as far as learning what the real world and learning how to make money. Like, There's nothing better than being a Cutco sales rep and manager at 18 and 19, right?
1: I couldn't agree more. And it was a double-edged sword because then when I was in school for business management and marketing, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Cause I was like, this is all theory. Like you need you to never go-, go back. You need to go make a hundred phone calls and see how it goes and show up yeah, to no, sh- no sale appointments and manage reps and pour into them and have them quit. And like, you need to just go do it. And I, so I sat there, you know, with my arms crossed in the back of the class, yeah. like shaking my head. So it kind of jaded me for college, yeah. but <laughs> I learned way more in Cutco than I did in college for sure. I'm like,
0: whenever we have a great idea and I can't do this all the time now, cause we have 85 teammates and things are a little bit different now, but my first go to, when we're trying to do something is like, let's go try and sell something. That'll tell yep. you if it's gonna work or not. Now yes. it, that that was the approach 15, 16 years ago when we were starting. But I still think elements of that play, right? If they do we can think about this as much as we want. When you ask somebody to separate themselves from their from their wallet, that's what's gonna tell you if it actually works.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I again I can talk about that concept for so long. I want to stay focused for our listener's sake and and bring it back to real estate and and what you have going on, the value that you have to offer. So, something you said at the beginning is that you now have this vertically integrated real estate investment firm that constructs new construction homes, fills it with a tenant and then sells it to an investor as a cash flow positive opportunity. Did I hear you right? Yes. Okay, so can you expand upon that because that seems like a no-brainer, first of all. But second of all, just you being in Jacksonville, Florida, that state in general, all of the tailwinds that are helping with real estate investment in that area, all of the pro-growth opportunities, like that seems like an incredible just little shift towards, you know, purchasing resale homes that, you know, they were built in 1978. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, like new construction, then fill it. And now let's sell that. Like that's Amazing. I would love to hear more about that.
0: And I would love to talk more about it. I mean, it, it's such an exciting uh, time right now to be in Jacksonville and doing what we're doing. But I've got to tell you, we've been doing this for 16 years. And, you know, I feel like the, the big guys that are now in the game, right? Though the Wall Street money, the private equity that's now in this space and single family rental properties is bringing validation to this business model. But it has been around for the longest time. We started to build new construction homes and rent them for positive cash flow and for for the great risk risk adjusted return that, that they offer back in 2011 and we were a pioneer mm. in the space we 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 just came across this idea back in 2011 that values of land were so low and because nobody was building back then that we could actually buy a piece of land build a house and be into it for the same amount of money as if we bought a property that was already built but you know built 60 years ago And we were like, oh, wow, if we could do this, this would be so amazing for our residents, right? We need to think about residents at the end of this, because that's who needs to be here to make this model work. And I was thinking, well, when I rented homes and when I was in college and soon after that, did I ever have the opportunity to rent a brand new construction home? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> right? Would would I have paid more to rent a brand new construction home than the one 100%? I was sent? 100%. So there's a huge win to do this for the resident, for the for the owner of the rental property, the investor. Right? There's there's clearly benefits to owning a brand new home versus uh, an older home. The biggest clearly. pain points for an investor are maintenance costs and vacancy costs. You know, if we had a brand new home, do we believe that we'd have lower maintenance and lower vacancy costs for the owner? We're limiting the biggest pain points for that owner. And the thing that we didn't know at that point was how important new construction would be in the overall inventory landscape that we see here today. Because Mm. we started to acquire land in 2011. And all of those years since, we have bought more land than we expected to build and sell in that year. For three, four, five, six years now, we've been buying 500, 700 properties a year this past year, twenty twenty excuse me, 2021, we bought 992 properties. We didn't sell 992 properties last year. We sold about 530, but we have continued to stockpile this land because if we can do that, what we can do is build these new construction homes, have inventory for our clients. Whereas right now, Jeffrey, I'm sure you can speak to this. People generally want to get into real estate right now, but when they decide they want to do it, they have real problems actually acquiring it because there's no inventory out there. Mm -hmm. And they go on a waiting list sometimes, right? Which isn't good as an investor. And so what became this wonderful thing that we stumbled upon 10 years ago has served our clients so well. And as I look at our inventory today and and really going into 2022 and beyond, over 90% of our inventory is brand new construction. And it will continue to get higher and higher going forward simply because there's no existing inventory in the market to serve the demand. You're
1: creating the inventory. Absolutely. Man, I love that. And so when you're talking about holding land, you're purchasing a, you know, the the worst house on the block and and holding it. You're not necessarily going out and purchasing raw land just outside the city limits and then like zoning it and doing a subdivision, right? That's typically not what we do, right? For the last right.
0: 10 years, it's been infill development, which is more of what you're talking about, where it's it's in an existing neighborhood. We buy the, the tract of land that wasn't built on, or sometimes we knock a house down that's not in good shape. And then we right. just vertical. But going well, forward, I, love, I think there's gonna be more tract development.
1: I love that from an investor standpoint, honestly, because with tract development, you really have to know what you're doing. You have mm-hmm. to have a friend at the zoning office and <laughs> you got to pull utilities out to some new area. And I mean, it's a whole thing. takes years. But if you level a, a house that's the crappiest house on the block, all the homeowners want it leveled. Exactly. All the homeowners want, they don't want that comp bringing their house prices down, right? Exactly. So, so you're helping to like gentrify and, and increase the values in that neighborhood. And they would love to see that thing leveled with a brand new one there. And then boom, they just got a boost in their home value. So. I love that. I think it's a phenomenal concept and I'm definitely going to be in touch about investment.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic. It's really something that many people aren't aware of, but when you think more and more about it, it's like a just no-brainer, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier?
0: You know, and I've been listening to your podcast. I just think it's incredible. And I know you're in the marketing... The marketing field here and the real estate field. And I I just I feel like we're kindred spirits because that's how I like to think about myself. You know, I was kind of prepping for the show and I and I was thinking, well, what's one thing that we do from a marketing perspective or from a sales perspective, from a technology perspective that's different than everybody else in the sphere? And there is one thing, and I and I wanted to actually ask you as somebody who sees far beyond what I see. You know, we do something called the client ROI report. And what I found early on at JWB for our clients is that. It's really hard for them to set the right expectations and be able to hold us accountable for what returns we we told them to expect in rental properties because
1: mm-hmm.
0: rental properties can be kind of messy. And it's not like the stock market where it's easy just to see appreciation. You've got rental income, you've got all five of those profit centers to take account for. So back in 2011, we actually built this client ROI report. And the concept was, if we set a plan for everybody before they started to buy, and we laid out what expectations they would have from all five profit centers, and we reported monthly on it and they got to see it, they would understand what their returns are, why their returns are what they are. And more importantly, they could hold us accountable. Because I think about other investment managers that I have worked with in my own money, it's so frustrating when they don't take a stand on exactly what they expect my returns to be, and they don't take a stand on exactly what they are, and they don't take a stand on why it happened. And I was like, wow, if we could we could bridge this gap. We could do so so much good for our clients. And as we've built our company, we would have this data flywheel and get better and better. So this client ROI report is something that we built a long time ago. I have searched out there. I haven't found another company that produces a report like this uh, with real information uh, versus expectations in the rental property world. And I was just curious if you've heard of anything like that.
1: No, I haven't. And I think that's a phenomenal value add for anyone that's investing with JWB. It's so easy to invest in something and look at a long-term return and then kind of not hear from that firm for for a long period of time you got to chase them down or ask about you know hey how are things going you might just assume appreciation because the market in my area is going up i'm investing out of state i guess the whole nation's going up you don't really know right and then also you might then get a as an investor you might get this like shiny new opportunity where you're like oh i'm going to liquidate that other thing and go into this which if you're not getting a report and accurate information, you might liquidate a 20% year over year return for something that's getting you 12 and not even know it. Right. Or if so, you don't
0: remember what your interest rate was on the loan and know that it's locked in for 30 years at three and a half percent, like, no, don't don't get rid of that. Don't do that. Right. You know, you can right. have those types of conversations.
1: Yeah. So I, I think that's very a wise investment that you set up years ago and have, you know, improved upon. I think that's great. I haven't heard oh. of anything else like that. Cool. Our team will show you. I think you're going to get it. You're going to really dig it. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: how can listeners contact you? So they can go ahead and start to take a look at our inventory by going to jwbmakesiteasy.com. jwbmakesiteasy.com. You can view our available inventory and start to book a call to get on the phone with our team if that's what you would choose. And then we also are really active. Uh, We do a, a show every Tuesday and Thursday called the Not Your Average Investor Show and it's a, a wonderful show where we talk about rental properties as an asset class but we compare it to other asset classes out there as well and i have a tremendous tremendous range of guests from other asset classes from jacksonville leaders from jwb clients all that good stuff so if you'd like to be a part of that you can register for the show it's free you can go to nyais.com for not your average investor
1: show.com and uh, we will stay in touch i love that the average listener listens to about seven podcasts so listen to lockbox and listen to not your average investor show it sounds like a great show as well is it a podcast is it a youtube like do they have to subscribe to it and they get emails to access it like how does that work a couple different ways
0: whatever is best for their time we do a zoom it's based off of zoom so we actually have a live show every tuesday and thursday at twelve thirty eastern really dynamic group of folks that join and then for those who can't make the live show it's in podcast form so you can just look it up wherever you get your podcasts
1: awesome love that yeah i'll link to everything below that you just mentioned greg cohen everyone jwb out in florida doing some incredible stuff and uh, i'll definitely be in touch with them so reach out if you're interested in investment in the Jacksonville area and uh, listen to his show really appreciate having you on greg thank you super super thankful for the opportunity we'll see you buddy thank you for listening